Bonjour, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Dr. Duncan French. He's the Vice President of Performance at the UFC's Performance Institute. The UFC has some of the world's top athletes, now backed by cutting-edge data-driven interventions from some of the most advanced protocols and coaches on the planet. Duncan is using everything from diagnostic tools to recovery, VR training, psychedelic supplementation, scientifically backed rep range protocols, and peri-training nutrition to get the most out of his athletes. Expect to learn how Duncan navigates the politics between fighters' gyms and the UFC's Central Performance Institute, how athletes manage the psychological strain of fight week, what key metrics Duncan's team analyze to judge athletes' health, how to maximize muscle growth from two sessions a week, and much more. The UFC is a beast, man. Say what you want, even if you don't enjoy MMA, what they've done in terms of their media, the way that they promote their fights, the way that they are now coaching their athletes with a central performance institute, it really is cutting edge. And Duncan is the driving force behind what's happening from a strength and conditioning perspective. So yeah, if you're an athlete or a coach or just a fan of strength and conditioning or the UFC in general, you're going to love this. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash modern right now. That's netsuite.com slash modern. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've won Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous. You do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand and fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free Pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap. Plus, you get your first month for free and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. This episode is brought to you by... AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, 
and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high-quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days. And if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But now, please welcome Dr. Duncan French. Dr. Duncan French, welcome to the show. Hi, mate. How are you doing? Good to hear from you. I know. It's nice to hear a familiar northeastern voice while we're over in the I States. I know, right? It's, uh, there's nothing like home when it comes down to it. It's Harrogate actually, here, right? Uh, originally North Yorkshire, yeah. Harrogate, Nairsville region, and then uh, moved to Newcastle for college. And uh, I kind of call Newcastle home now. Wow. I'm an ad- adopted Geordie, let's say. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, the number of times that I get accused of being Australian while I'm over here, I was at a big meetup yesterday and I got accused of being Australian more times than I got accused of being British. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or not. Oh, mate, I, get, I, I mean, what? I'm in my fifth year, well, four years for my PhD and then now five years since I came back to the States. I get everything from South African to Australian to New Zealand to Arkansas, you name it. <laughs> wow. So you've been working with, is it over 30 professional or Olympic sports since you started? Yeah, I think 37, I think, was the last time I counted. So, yeah, been uh, been blessed. It's been good. Lots of uh, lots of variety and lots of opportunity. But, yeah, whether it's you know pro sport or the Olympic movement, um, I've, uh, I've been around the block, let's say. <laughs> and it was three full Olympic cycles with Team GB as well. Yeah, through the English Institute of Sport, which is obviously the high-performance service provider to British Olympic programs, um, as well as Commonwealth programs like netball and things like that. But um, I was a strength and conditioning coach and you know sports scientist through the through the, um, the English Institute for about fourteen years. As you say, a variety of different um, sporting backgrounds. So it's been it's been cool, cool ride right to now. What's the common thread between all of those? Have you moved into specialities since you've been there? Was it always strength and conditioning? Was it performance? Yeah, no, I mean, I've always been a, a strength and conditioning physical preparation coach. You know, that's that's kind of what I would call my, you know, my my primary area of expertise. Um, you know, with with some sports science weaved into there. You know, I, I, I my degrees and things, PhDs are in sports science, um, but I certainly went around the coaching route. Um, and then uh, could call upon my strength and conditioning and uh, my sports science throughout that. So um, yeah, it's uh, let's say many many hats, many uh, many strings to the bow when you need it. You know that's kind of part of the deal. So given the fact that you've had over thirty sports that you've worked with, and then you've stepped into the UFC, what is particularly unique about the athletes that you work with there? You've got this broad base of experience in the past, but now you're working with a very uh, broad-ranging sport. What's different about the guys that you work with, their preparation, their training? 
Yeah, I mean, listen, every sport's got its own culture um, and, and things that you really resonate to and things that you're like, whoa, why are they doing it like that? You know, and um, you kind of question some of the behaviours. But, you know, I think I'm not bold enough to say, you know, the success is because of me. It's, it's it, you know, hopefully I play or, or my t- the teams that I'm involved with play a role in that. You know, athletes are successful before, um, you know, the service providers come online and they'll be successful long after we're gone. I think, you know, when you look at all the different sports, they all come with different cultural approaches and different kind of dogmatic mindsets in, in what is good and what is bad. Um, you know, I'm blessed right now to work with combat athletes and, and obviously MMA fighters here in the UFC. And uh, I think this is the one sport in, in all of my career where the challenges and the different um, variables that go into success are so complex um you know this this community this group of athletes are you know they'll they'll run through a brick wall for you right you you can harness that motivation and that energy and um, i think that's one thing which really differentiates combat athletes is just the commitment to the grind um any any elite athlete at the highest level is doing things that are you know are different to the normal Joe Blow walking down the street, right? But I think when you look at the rigors of what MMA is and what these guys go through on a day-to-day basis, it it truly has a lot to behold. And I think that's that's what's fascinating about this community. You know, they are spitting sawdust and and pretty honest as the day is long, but they are, you know, their their commitment and their dedication to their craft and their ethic is uh, is uh, is is unfounded. It's amazing. Would you say that the MMA fighters are about as ultimate of an athlete as you're going to get at the moment coming out of sport? Yeah, I mean, again, I'm biased, right, because I sit in this space right now. But again, I, I compare and you look at the conditioning levels, you look at gymnasts or divers and the you know the skill and the artistry is amazing. It, you can take any sport and you can pull things from it. But just in terms of, you know, true athleticism and, and what an MMA fighter has to do by combining strength, power, conditioning, skill, um, the psychological component of being able to execute under what is, you know, truly severe and consequential outcomes um, really differentiates them. And and, and it's funny because I get a lot of other athletes or athletes that I've worked with, worked with formally reaching out to me and say, oh, you know, big fan of the UFC. Or um, I, I think that's kind of a measure when you have other pro athletes saying, like, I love watching MMA and the UFC and those guys are unreal what they can do. And, okay, well, if, if you're saying that, then... Um, there's obviously something in it, which is uh, which is pretty cool to hear. Yeah, it's such an entertaining sport. You know, the guys have really, really got this format right, which is it's it's two guys or two girls in a eight-sided ring smashing seven shades of shit out of each other uh, for a <laughs> while. And then someone's hand gets raised at the end of it. It's a fairly simple format, but it is so accessible, super entertaining. I think the buildup that they've got now, um, at first I wasn't much of a fan of the cleaning up of the branding but i think that that also makes everything look a lot more cleaner and and professional which is great um going back to what you said before about the fact that there has been an influence of your input the performance institute on the outcomes that you're getting from the fighters but because you are dealing with every fighter the waterline of all of them gets raised up, right? Like everybody has access to you guys. Now, not everybody's going to get the same sort of outcomes because not everybody's as coachable. Not everybody responds as well. They might have more dogmatic ideologies within their own gym and such like. But how are you um, gauging the impact that you have across the board, across all fighters when everybody has access? It's not like the UFC beat some other organization in a big battle royale. 
Uh, it's a little bit different to any professional sporting organisation where you're judged on wins and losses um, for all intents and purposes, right? Um, we're, we're, we're kind of the league, let's say, um, and we'll only have a bat 500 because we might be working with both athletes that are in the octagon at the same time for a main event. But you've so, never lost a fight. Uh, <laughs> right we've never we've never lost a fight we've also won won a lot as well right <laughs> lost a lot excuse me i mean um i think uh you know our, our evaluation of our success is based on different kind of kpis and objectives it comes down to um you know what you said at the head of your question yes the performance institute is about raising the level across the whole fight community globally that's a that's a big ambition right um but it's about slowly evolving the sport to embed you know better training science better methodologies better approaches for medicine or nutrition or whatever it may be return to play rates are obviously a common one but you know the nature of injuries and the incidence of injuries and how they're happening around a, a wrestling practice that might have too many athletes on the mat at one time and you know wrestling scramble and someone might roll onto a, a, another pair working somewhere else on the mat and you cause a stupid injury that's completely preventable you know th those type of things we kind of try and keep an eye on um looking at how athletes are making weight and the, the status of their weight making exercises and it does is it done in a in an, in an optimized fashion you know ultimately we're in a weight classification sport which in itself is a, a cultural approach not every sport requires you to make weight that brings with it a lot of nuance and a lot of tradition and approaches so how do we kind of get the athletes into the octagon in the most optimal way possible um around the parameters of making weight and the guys having to cut weight the technical skills that have been executed we take a lot of interest in that as well because ultimately by association whilst we're not necessarily the ones coaching those techniques or the technical tactical side of it giving people physical attributes or a mental status to go and try a technique in competition or um you know as i say optimizing someone's capability during competition you you would say that the probability of of the, the fight being um, at a higher level, at a higher standard, has also got some influence by the work that we're doing as well. Yeah, one of the things that's interesting is if you look back to the traditions of fighting, you know, your Bruce Lee's, the very much a sort of savant artistic interpretation. You had mm. more uh, Eastern martial arts that would involve things like energy, cheese, such like. How are you finding the blend? Because I, you, I'm presuming you can't have completely got rid. And there's also, you know, the the sort of fighters that are very much flow and natural and, and, and artistic in the way that they fight. How are you finding the blend between this artistic element and the data-driven in, in interventions that you need to make with people? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I think first and foremost, it's it's martial arts, right? It's mixed martial arts. And whilst it's a, it's a competitive fight and the, the you know that that's chaos often um it, you know you'd be surprised the underpinning techniques and tactics that go into uh, into the fight any moment in time um and again i draw on you know uh, something that's been brought into our ecosystem here at the performance institute through our uh, head mma coach over at our shanghai academy dean amma singer he talks about um the mfa which is the martial artists or the m the, you know the, the martial artists they are fighters and then there are also athletes, all right? So FMA, like we, we look at that kind of trifecta of influence. So when it comes to, you know, the artistry, the tactics, the, the technical skill set, and then, yeah, athleticism, we can put a lot of data and objectivity around athleticism. So whether it is martial arts, 
being a fighter, which is more mental and, and, and some physical attributes, but then also the physical attributes of athleticism and being an athlete, we can start to really nail down each of these three factors that go into um, you know driving success in our sport. Talking about some of the tensions that might be going on between the way that people typically see fighters, particularly those that do MMA and the new world or this sort of renaissance that you guys are getting with data-driven interventions and stuff and trying to prof- professionalize all of this. How are you finding managing the relationship between your team and the guys that you look after and the interventions that they want and then the uh, athletes, the fighters coach and the gym that they go back to or the multiple gyms that they might go back to afterwards? They're going to have their ideas around how they should be preparing, how they should be training, their loading, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Talk to me about the tension between those. Yeah, I think you talk about tension. I think you got to try and remove the tension, and that—that's any sport, right? And again, I draw on my experiences, and um, it doesn't matter what sport you go into. It comes down to you know the maturity of people to handle data and handle information. Now, for some sports that have got you know legacy and long-term history of using wearable technology or handling data, looking at statistics and measuring up. You know, you take a sport like basketball, everything's built, or American football, everything's built around statistics. Baseball is probably the most classic one there. Um, so, so they're really comfortable in using and talking about numbers and using numbers to direct strategy. Other sports might not necessarily be as mature in handling data and, and be comfortable with that type of information. Mixed martial arts, being one of them. So what we're trying to do is obviously elevate people's awareness and understanding of the types of information we're giving them and what it means. Just innovating and using anecdotal insights to suggest that a certain tactic or technique is going to be hugely successful. Um, you know, you can look to the recent kind of evolution of leg kicks or low low calf kicks in MMA and how it's kind of revolutionising our sport as something that's really pivoted the sport and taking it down a different direction. I mean. Calf kicks have always been around, but they've not been used as much as they are now. And they're, they're truly debilitating, right? So it's becoming a, a real tactic, an offensive tactic. But you've also got to be defending against that. So, you know, out there in the community, the coaches are, are innovating at any moment in time. But what we're trying to do is is kind of put evidence and evaluation against it to say, you know, how can we optimize it further? How can we give you competitive competitive advantage and try and come together and, and meet the rubber where where it meets the road with the, the maturity of an athlete or a coach to handle information? Yeah. How do you deal with the fact that typically you have a strength and conditioning or a coaching unit that is looking after one team and every athlete that works underneath them is being pushed forward, whereas you are doing opponent, fighter and opponent. Now, obviously, yeah. there'll be securities around data and such like. It's not like you're going to be telling each fighter what the other one's preparing and stuff like that. But it, that must be a very unique uh, environment to work in, right? Where you are, like we said before, you win and lose every single fight that you've been involved in. Right. Yeah. I mean, we're agnostic to the whole roster. So you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, athlete, the, the, the model that we work to is that the UFC fighters are independent contractors. So we can't mandate that they engage with the Performance Institute and the services that we offer. Um, it's very much an a la carte, take it or leave it, pick what you want type approach. And obviously that drives individuality from the very get go. Some athletes want all of our service provision. Some athletes want nothing to do with us because there's a lot of paranoia about what you're talking about in this question. Other athletes will pick and choose bits and pieces as and when they see fit. You know, if you've got a uh, some kind of injury or historical injury that we're working and treating with you, you know, ov- obviously your opponent, we, 
doesn't you know it, it, that's that information is sacrosanct if your opponent was to find that out that could truly change the the likelihood of your success in the event so yeah we're very sensitive to how we handle information how we handle data knowing that we've got this really kind of wild and unique business model that we work to where we're potentially working with two fighters that are going to compete in a month's time um, and we're strategizing and working with their coaches helping them on physical development etc etc i think you know the the thing that we do to distance ourselves completely for that is that we don't coach and teach technical and tactical work through the performance institute which is obviously the secret source um you know the, the mma techniques what what we do is obviously support them with you know nutrition and body composition with diagnostics with physical preparation with mental preparation all those supplementary factors what are the primary metrics that you're looking at over the uh weeks and months so my housemate has just been given a promotion at Newcastle Falcons. He's now the junior physio of the first team. Uh, and since living with him for the last few years, I've been fascinated learning about chronic load uh, and uh, yardage. And I got to see the back end of one of the spreadsheets that they have these readouts. And it's just an endless right. endless stream of data. Who got the, up to the maximum velocity this week? Who's done the most yardage? All this stuff. So what's the equivalent in your world? What do you look at from the players? Yeah, I mean, welcome to the world of like world-class or elite level sport right now. I mean, there's more data than we all know what to do with because ultimately technology has changed the game. I mean, just just kind of processing that in a team setting can can be overwhelming. Um, but I think when we look at you know MMA, obviously we're, we're we're trying to get to the same questions. We're trying to understand how you optimize training load, the exposure to a training stimulus to maximize the effect of that training stimulus. So how how do we do that? How do we measure people's exposure? And um, what's the right exposure? It's the Goldilocks effect, right? How much is too much? How much is too little? And oh, Goldilocks, that's just right exactly that's what we need to be um there's a lot of research and literature out there that we know connection between the the the, the likelihood of injury or an in injury incidence with overtraining versus undertraining versus you know where, where things sit so that's an important conversation but in the sport of mma it's a little bit different right because um we don't have um really robust data insights around competition not like they're wearing heart rate monitors. It's not like they're wearing GPS. It's not like they're wearing any kind of accelerometers or those types of things where we can really start to understand what competition is. We're kind of extrapolating a little bit and making insinuations based on what we the data we can get in sparring or in training. So yeah, we look at training load. We look at you know vision assessments and, and reaction times. We look at cognitive function. Obviously, it's a you know a sport where you're getting hit in the head. So how do we monitor and manage those those exposure loads? Whether it's through instrumented mouthpieces that have accelerometers in them where we can look no at head impacts, way. whether it... you can put something in the mouth that's going to measure everything oh yeah yeah that's that's kind of the direction we're going now that's, and that's, that's kind of already yeah in, in, in rugby and australian rules football it's already happening a little bit we're in you know we're pursuing that with mma um and then you've obviously got other factors like um you know, just your strength, power, characteristics, heart rate for your conditioning, what's your training zone, what's your biological load with respect to lactate management, things like that. So that's the North Star for us right now is working with different partners and technology and academics to say, all right, how can we really nail down an understanding of what MMA is? Um, because we haven't got those insights. And obviously there's the striking components, but there's grappling components where you're not really moving too much, but there's a huge metabolic demand through isometric hold or isometric contraction that it's really hard to classify what that looks like in terms of ultimately the athletic load that you have to, uh, you know, 
form in the octagon. I went to this meetup that I said yesterday where I got accused of being an Australian. And <laughs> at it, I, uh, I met this guy who spends eight hours a day in virtual reality. So he's at the forefront of, of um, like developing Poor apps guy. and games. <laughs> yeah, we, he seemed to love it. But, um, and he was telling me that there is um, new VR technology that is able to track uh, the body's position in space so that it can accurately represent it in the virtual reality world. I'm wondering whether you would be able to get to the stage in future where all of the different camera angles that you guys have around the octagon may be able to track stuff like trauma and movement um, and then be able to reverse engineer that to actually be able to give you some sort of metrics. But the fact that you've got whatever, a, a GPS mouth guard with an inbuilt HRV monitor or a heart rate sensor in it, that blows my mind. You could have something that you just knock into knock into your mouth and it give you all of those solutions is crazy yeah it's cool right and again that's one piece of equipment and technology that they wear in training and competition so you know that that's that's something that we're pursuing because it can be universal then um but yeah i mean you talk about vr like anything that mitigates you know tbi or concussion or the risk of head trauma in our sport is going to be beneficial and advantageous uh, so we're, we're actively pursuing those types of things um and yeah vr virtual reality augmented reality along with haptic technology where you look at vibration so you know it's coming out of the gaming world you know world of warcraft or whatever or cod you know those types of things where you you know you shoot your gun but you're getting that feedback as well at the same time how can we apply haptic technology in a uh, augmented reality space where we're using vr and we're also getting haptic feedback to say you're suggesting you're getting hit or you know a punch or something but you're actually not um you know th those are the types of training strategies kind of moving into the future that we're all ex also exploring dude this is year 3000 shit it's so <laughs> <Right>. advanced <laughs> did i hear you once mention that you guys were looking at some of the potential impacts of psychedelics as a performance enhancer not as a performance enhancer, but around traumatic brain injury. Um, oh, so it's like as a neuroprotective again, type thing. Correct. Yeah, and and, and you know, the, there's there's been some good work, particularly out of um, John Hopkins University over in Maryland. Certain medical conditions that are, are going to be terminal at some point. So how do they use psychedelics to relieve pain or, or remove, um, you know, and, and again, in, in kind of combat populations where they looked at post-traumatic stress disorders and depression and some of these aspects on a very clinical level, how psychedelics have potentially um, an opportunity to to influence that. Again, it's very early days for the UFC. It's not something that we're completely, um, you know, running down this avenue right now. But again, looking at working with partners to cover every avenue to see where yes we know that we 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 operate in a combat sport right there are certain um you know issues and factors related to combat sport within the parameters of our the rules of the sport where yes it, it's a it's a collision and it's a contact sport it's going to lead to certain physical um psychological social emotional in, impacts that um might have a detrimental effect so you know i think we're just very engaged in trying to understand that and take them on so that we can do a better job of keeping our athletes in the in the you know in the most safe and, and healthy space possible so whether it's a um a rule change whether it's equipment that you wear whether it's um interventions like psychedelics or like nutritional interventions or neurotropics or whatever it may be um mitigate or minimize those health and safety risks as much as possible how much do you deal with the um, psychological strain? So I'm fascinated by 
the fact that you're asking your athletes, and this is the same with every fight sport. I mean, it's the same with every sport in general, but particularly with a fight sport where there's so much glory around success, there's so much not shame around defeat, but you can see it in the player's body language or the fighter's body language right at the end of the fight. Plus, there is fight week leading up to it. There's press conferences. There's shit talking beforehand. There's weight cuts. There's it's such a unique blend of psychological strain which is precisely designed at least by your opponent that way right to put you in a, a place where you're not actually all that confident um how much have you looked at strategies for how the guys can deal with this and are there any lessons that people could take away uh into their own lives for in the build-up to a stressful situation or something that they're perhaps a little bit anxious about yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, and again, listen, we're remember we're a promotion, right? Um, and these guys are independent independent contractors, so they're in the business of promoting themselves to get you know people to buy tickets to come and watch them. So whether it's shit talking or whether it's promotion, like they're, they're trying to sell the event and get people interested in their fights. Um, you know, you know, without letting you behind the curtain too much you know some of that's obviously real some of it's bravado um but again it makes for a makes for an interesting build-up to to the fight itself um yeah i mean from a psychological or sports psychology perspective we're absolutely getting into that space because it's a it's a pillar of performance so how do athletes manage that how do they use it we when we first started the performance institute back in 2017 we didn't have sports psychology as part of our portfolio of services it's absolutely a critical core component now and we offer that to uh, to the athletes um but yeah i think you know to to answer it succinctly um you know we do a lot of work around kind of mindfulness and being able to disassociate from all that white noise and being able to internalize what is your game plan you know that you've done the work. You know that you're technically and tactically proficient in what you need to do. So how do you remove the white noise and pursue the signal of your mindfulness of being present in the moment? Now, pre present in the moment in, in, in the UFC can be someone kind of seven seconds from choking you out. So, um, you know, you, you've still got to be mindful and present at that moment. But again, it comes down to, right, what's the technique? What's the tactic I need to actually execute to remove this choke? To succinctly give you an answer, when we look at our psychologists and the way, work that they do um, with our athletes, it's very much around being present and being mindful and being able to process things effectively. Otherwise, it, those, those external signals just overwhelm. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, It's strange to think about the number of parameters that go into uh, someone putting a good performance on in UFC like it's so yeah. unbelievably intense to balance all of these different elements and something that I've always thought about is the number of athletes out there in any domain who physically may have the character physiologically may have the characteristics to make them an unbelievably elite athlete they may have the approach to training they may have the genetics they may have the work rate the conscientiousness the industriousness the support system everything however they are unable to deal with the stress of game day and i wonder how many athletes throughout the years have got themselves to the stage where they were they, they, they could have been a world chat they could have been the greatest that ever lived and they were let down by their inability to kind of get out of their own head and allow themselves to perform on game day. Yeah, uh, and, you know, the stakes are pretty high in this sport. This is, like I say, it's a sport of consequences, right? And the every sport has got consequences, um, but in this sport, they can be pretty severe, right? Um, 
so that just layers on kind of the, the pressures and the stresses and uh, yeah, we, we we jest here at the pi but we say you know it's the mma is 90 percent mental apart from the 60 percent that's physical Do you know what i mean like it's it's just everything you, you, you need everything in this sport and again coming back to one of your early questions like it's really hard to you know there's so many variables right so it's really hard to say one is any more important than the other but when it comes to mental fortitude and that's even before you get into competition like the mental fortitude just to get through the rigors of training on a daily basis like just a mental fortitude to be compliant and and um you know adhere to a long term approach to technical and tactical development as well as physical development that alone is is challenging in our sport now you can liken that to things like you know rowing or or rugby codes or whatever it may be which are also very physical but then yeah you layer on that psychological piece of you're walking into competition and there's millions watching on tv and you're potentially going to get knocked out and people are going to ridicule you and laugh at you whilst you're Make laying memes unconscious about on you your on back. twitter right which is which is you know shocking you know these these underpants you know internet warriors um it's easy to point fingers so you know that that's where i come back to like our, our athletes are up there with with the best of them when it comes to their ability to um, to deal with all the variables that go into success. It's pretty, you know, it's truly a decathlon of combat sport. Have you worked with rowing? I have, yeah, a lot. Well, one of the things that I think about there is the uh, I, I've done two k row time tests before, and the state of arousal that I get myself of fear, basically, that I get myself <laughs> yeah. into before having before having to do that. Um, what were some of the lessons that you got out of the time that you worked with rowers? Because, you know, there's some of the events that they do, which are and, and some of the training sessions that I've done. I always find yeah. the um, Oxford-Cambridge rowing event, the lead up to that, you know, where they go through the training montages and they explain what everyone's going through. It looks up there with some of the most brutal training protocols that I've ever seen. Is that is that what it's actually like? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, rowing can be, yeah, the the... the 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 physical demands of elite level rowing um, and and the physical and physiological adaptations that you're trying to make to your body in training are are massive right so yeah those guys push themselves to the absolute limit so I met a couple of guys who were recently on a reality TV program for a grappling an upcoming grappling competition that was going on and it was kind of like a an ultimate fighter style thing so living in a fight house. And they were going out and doing their whatever, and they were playing pranks on each other in between and stuff like that. And they had, in order to get through to one of the next rounds, they had a no time limit uh, grappling yeah. event, which I, I, I had never heard of before, but isn't unbelievably rare, apparently, in, in that world. And um, one of the fights that the, the dude that was traveling to this event in San Antonio with us had lasted for three hours and 55 minutes of grappling three hours and 55 minutes of of grappling think about that think about that i mean just processing that is is ridiculous right you're essentially um you know grappling and trying to you know submit or choke out an opponent the same duration it takes someone to run a marathon you know i mean it's just almost unfathomable but that's what these guys will do um and the warrior spirit will you know will take them through that Dude, it's it's unbelievable. I um I was really really impressed, but it's one of those things where you realize just how big of a delta there is between everybody sits on the sidelines and talks about like oh well you know it'd be it'd be he should slip that punch and he should do this in a different way because everybody feels like they have some sort of 
five pence to add into the discussion around things, you realize there is, it's a different universe. These people are they're, they're completely different animals. So speaking of that, are there some fighters that you've worked with or that you've seen in the Performance Institute, either sort of current roster or previous roster, that are just a, a total joy to coach or people that have come in with a, a very particular um, physiology that you found that's that's unique or different or impressive that you hadn't seen previously? Um, I mean, I, I, talking in – well, I'll answer your question. Y yes, it's funny, right, because um, I've worked with all these different sports, but, you know, there's one thing which the armchair expert always knows, and that's fighting and nutrition. You know what I mean? So it's like there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of noise and a lot of opinion in this, in this yeah in this world. Um, but you know you cut through that. I, I think, like I said, I come back to the clientele, the athlete population. Like the the, the in my experience, you know, the, whilst there's different polarizing characters in our sport, talking generically. Like th this is a group of athletes that I just love working with. That are like that they, they want to get after it. They want to do the work. They're not scared of the work. They are committed to you know the cause and to the arts and all that type of stuff. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, absolute pleasure to work with. Of course, they've got quirks and traits. And like, come on, mate, that's what the fuck are you doing? That? Like, why are you doing that? But I mean, at the end of the day, as a group of athletes, I I would work with combat athletes any day of the week certainly on the physical preparation side, because you're not having to convince them to do the work. Usually um, you're pulling the horses back and saying, you know, well, hold on, like enough is enough. Like let's, let's uh, just think about this strategically. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to mention any particular names, but there's uh, there's lots of individuals on our roster who um, like absolute warriors, true first-class people, whether they've come from Olympic backgrounds through freestyle wrestling in the Olympic Games or whether they come through collegiate programs or whether they're talent transfers from football, like American football, um, or whether they're just guys that have been on the fight circuit and journeymen that have been knocking people out, you know, for year over year and just like, okay, this is a guy that even those guys, like, great to be around because you can learn so much from their, their mindset and their mentality of how they approach life, right? It's fascinating. So going into some of the training protocols and stuff that you use that people at home may be able to take on, I know that you've done a lot of research around optimal reps, set ranges, rest periods in order to maximize muscle growth and hypertrophy. What have you come to, what sort of conclusion have you come to at the moment with that? Yeah, I mean, the irony is that um, we don't pursue a lot of hypertrophy um, training techniques in combat athletes because usually they're having to make weight. Um, so, you know, we're not trying to put excessive amounts of muscle on, a, on an athlete in, in the rare chance we do if someone moves up a weight class or if someone's kind of still, you know, chronically underfueled or whatever it may be. Um, we, we try and pursue some of those types of things. But, yeah, I mean, I think the key things to hypertrophy uh, obviously, you know, looking at the time under tension that you put the muscle tissue under. Also looking at muscle damage, how you ensue muscle damage, you're kind of the pillars of hypertrophy. Um, so using different training uh, approaches, whether it be cluster sets, whether it be drop sets, whether it be pause reps, whether it be eccentrics, accentuated eccentrics, whatever, there's a different way to do that. So there's no like perfect method for creating hypertrophy. But, you know, looking at time under tension is a volume conversation. It's, it's how much ten tension can you put through a muscle within a working set? So, you know, larger rep ranges and set ranges, obviously, or the number of times within a week. So kind of looking at um, 
you know, 12 to 30 sets for a given muscle group in a training week is where you're trying to pursue hypertrophy. Um, looking at how you damage tissue because then it can regrow and redevelop, at, at, you know, to a greater level. Um, so rebuild larger. So how do you use techniques like eccentrics? Um, that are going to promote some tissue damage to allow it to then regenerate and recover. When you say um, when you say eccentrics, are you talking about tempo movements, basically? There. Correct. Yeah. 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 Slow. You know, slow eccentric. So concentric shortening actions versus eccentric lengthening actions, which we know damage the muscle more. And then also creating a metabolic stimulus. Like, what's the internal environment? Whether it's nitric oxide that you're trying to release, and that's where some of this, uh, you know, blood flow restriction is now quite vogue in in hypertrophy training. You know, that's just trying to create a metabolic stress inside the cell. And then obviously the critical thing in parallel to those three factors is nutrition is protein and protein synthesis and looking at um you know the the, the protein synthetic rate of, of muscle how how muscle can turn over protein and are you fueling your button excuse me wrong, wrong term are you providing kind of the the building blocks um and usually that is you know leucine is is the key amino acid um for muscle growth and muscle hypertrophy that we need to think about um but are you kind of putting your nutrition strategy in a very complementary fashion with the training strategy and a training stimulus that is going to affect those three factors. I mean, that's key to kind of way to go with respect to hypertrophy. Yeah. What are the big mistakes that people are making when it comes to that sort of uh, peri-training nutrition strategy? Well, I think a lot of the, the science, a lot of research obviously is around nutrient timing. Um, and, you know, I think particularly around a uh, – around a training session you try you need to get the protein in as close to the cessation of uh, or the end of your, your your workout as possible right because that's when the you know protein synthetic rate is going to be at its highest um, and the resynthesis of protein and the rebuilding of the amino acids is going to be at its highest level so providing those building blocks through a nutrition intervention is going to be critical if you leave it too long obviously you're just um, negating or mitigating the extent of protein synthesis that's going to happen so that's kind of the key thing um and yeah anywhere between kind of 0.25 to 0.3 of a gram per kilo of body weight per day is um is what you're looking at from a protein stimulus or a protein intake for uh, hypertrophy 0.25 to 0.3 of a gram per kilo of body weight post what is that just around the workout per day I'm trying to work out because that, surely that would be whatever, 40 grams or 30 grams of protein per day. Correct. But that's not total Correct. intake. No, no, not total intake. Yes. In, in, in terms of supplementary protein. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's so inter It's so funny that there was that sort of back in the day, the, the bro science around where you need to get your post-workout shake in as quickly after a training session as possible. And then again, you're, you're talking to people that get their information from bodybuilding.com forums, right? And like meme pages from Reddit and stuff like that. But uh, that was something that was, I think about five years ago, very widely dispelled as if it fits your macros, it doesn't really matter. Calories are calories. And then when we actually go and speak to somebody that's at the cutting edge of elite sport, it turns out that, well, maybe the, the bros in the beginning were right all along. There's um, evidence-based research and research-based evidence, right? And I think it's, it, you know... A lot of sports techniques and sports training have been built on anecdotal insights and people trying out techniques. And then, you know, the science has followed and put efficacy against some of those some of those uh, original methods. And clearly it's also, um, you know, 
made other approaches and other methods less than efficacious and they've been kind of phased out so uh yeah it's it, what, what's leading the narrative the science or the practice is always a, the question talking about something that i never ever considered uh during training because it's just it felt like something that was too complex and too sort of forward thinking about the hormone release effect that you get from different types of training stimulus. And let's say that it's for somebody that's just trying to keep themselves fit and look good and, you know, be healthy and maybe gain a little bit of muscle and keep themselves at whatever body fat level or perhaps even try and recomp a little bit. Um, I'd never considered the impact of different training methodologies on the hormone profile that's going on in my body and you hear about the fact that you get growth hormone release from heavy compound movements and you get testosterone release from such and such what is for the normal layperson that's just looking to train what are the things that they should consider when it comes to optimizing uh, hormone release through their training methodology well, I mean, I think it, it's it's important to understand like th this metabolic stimulus, right? As we've talked about time under tension, we've talked about muscle damage, and then obviously the metabolic stimulus, the metabolic environment that's created within the muscle. So, you know, this is what my PhD work was around. So, um, you know, this is where kind of some of my messaging has come th from in this space. Um, but yeah, again, it comes back to how you stimulate intensities of or, or volumes of workload to create that metabolic stimulus, of which a uh, endocrine cascade is part of the the equation. It's not the whole equation, obviously. Um, what do you mean when you say endocrine cascade? Well, just the release of hormones consequent to uh, consequent to you know muscle stimulus, or you do a program that is you know five sets of two with three minutes in between each set it's going to be a very diff different metabolic stimulus to um four sets of 12 with uh, 60 seconds rest between right so you know that, that that's the the challenge of training and training strategies understanding um what is it of those three factors that you're trying to stimulate um I think metabolic stimulus and you know hormone responses is, is a part of that conversation. So um, when you're trying to maximize hypertrophy and you're trying to maximize those three particular factors, um, then potentially there's some uh, some legs to consider in what you do to stimulate hormone release as well. So you're looking at intensity as one of the key factors for this? Yes, intensity and volume. Yeah, intensity and volume. Because again, if you look at st training intensity and how hard you're pushing a muscle or the contractual units of a, of your of the muscle um that's going to have a certain stimulus and then if you do it multiple times in the absence of oxygen you know you can play on that those two factors by creating training strategies by the um be different workouts within a given week or within a specific workout where you're targeting those two things at the same time. Again, the, the end point is that you're trying to stimulate a stress response um, that might have or will have kind of some beneficial effects um, to promote muscle growth uh, within the cell. I've heard you say, is it six sets of 10 at 80% with a couple of minutes rest in between as one of the protocols that you use? Yeah, I mean, that was very much from my PhD um research yeah six sets of 10 um with uh with a with a minute's rest in between one Ultimately, minute uh, sorry uh, 90 seconds in between excuse me 90 seconds in between um but do that as drop sets so you're always trying to retain the you start a load of 80 percent of your one rm but the key thing is to hit the 10 repetition um requirement of each set take the loads 
Um, you might not be able to complete the set of 10. You rack it, you immediately unload and you finish off the remaining repetitions to complete your 10 sets. So, yeah, it's a pretty challenging and, and brutal approach to uh, a training <laughs> stimulus. It's fucking absolutely possessed. Like, it's, <laughs> it does, I can't think of a more disgusting training product because what I hadn't heard the first time that I heard you say that I hadn't heard about the, the stripping of weights, either like intraset or across sets. Um, so I'm thinking who can do six by 10 at 80% who can do 10, yeah, who can do uh, one by 10 at 80%, um, with, well, especially with the no, short no, rest. No, normally you get two, two sets out, um, at 80% or so, but then yeah, uh, the, and into the, potentially second or third or beyond sets, you, you really start to strip the bar back. Because then again, like I say, that's now becomes the the volume conversation, time under tension type conversation, metabolic stress. It's about using the drop sets of the load to complete the, the required volume. Uh, am I guessing that if you were to do an RPE, you'd be looking at like an RPE 9.5 by the end of each set? <laughs> I mean... Yeah, I mean, because it, it can't be a ten, or else you're not going to have made. Oh, well, I guess it would be a ten, but you're not going to have gone above a ten because otherwise you wouldn't have made those yeah. the repetitions, right? I mean, a ten on an RPA scale is maximal, right? So yes. you would want maximum because if you only do four repetitions, you unload. You might get another two repetitions out. You unload again. You might get another three repetitions. Like that's how you work in the the stimulus, right? So it's always trying to be maximal in in nature. Okay. And with this, did you find that certain exercises engendered themselves to better hormone release? I'm going to guess larger movements, more muscle groups being recruited. What were the yeah, best I, exercises? I think that's the secret to all like hypertrophy type approaches is that, uh, yeah, multiple large compound exercises group more muscle and more muscle activation. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, well, I might, I might see if some of the lads in the gym fancy doing it tomorrow, but I, I it's, <laughs> they're going to take a little bit. Of, I'll get them to listen to this first, and I'll tell them about your credentials, and we'll see, we'll see what they can say. Talking about recovery between sessions, and especially with your guys, right? Because you've got so many different domains that the fighters need to be able to move through. It's not just technique stuff. It's not just strength and conditioning. It's not just the cardio. All of these different bits and pieces. What have you found is an upper bound that you can get? say the average elite fighter i'm aware that that person doesn't particularly exist um what's the upper bound in terms of a training volume you know duration per day that you can get people through uh i mean i'll answer that a little bit differently i, I mean we, we recommend kind of anywhere between 10 and 14 training units a week um but there's guys that are absolutely doing upwards of 18 to 20 training units a week you know, there's, there's there's a conversation around quality, right? It's a quality and quantity conversation. Um, some, uh, you know, some sessions, you know, are going to be 60 to 90 minutes long, but there's also fighters that'll pull three hour long training sessions and think, you know, don't think twice about it. So it's, uh, that's where we don't have the answers right now. We don't understand kind of what is the true optimal level. What's the true, um, you know, the true standard approach that, that we put in place um and we're still trying to figure that out through kind of monitoring and evaluating training kind of loads and people's ability to tolerate that i've got a bunch of friends who are chasing for a crossfit games or a crossfit regionals spot at the moment and i think that there are some similarities probably between your guys's sports just that they're uh, very wide in terms of the different domains and the different stimuluses that you're trying to get out of uh, all of the different training protocols that people do and there you know i'll say hey man send me because i just like to be a, a sort of a, a voyeuristic uh, torturer and i'll say but send me what your training week looks like 
and you see it's up at 7 a.m. for a hour and a half swim it's back i'll go to, i'll have a nap until the morning time i'll do some strength work and maybe some monostructural work then i'll go back have some more food then i'll go in. you're thinking like this is you know multiple days per week and their active recovery days look like just a slightly lower intensity version of a longer workout that i might try and do and um yeah it's yeah i mean it's if you think of something like if you think of something like CrossFit, which has got you know potentially many different components to it, whether you're working on your strength or your Olympic lifts, or whether you're working on handstand walks or you know swimming, you know now bringing swimming into the CrossFit games, what like so you don't you don't know what's going to happen in the CrossFit games, right? So you ha- you're always preparing for the unknown by just ticking every single box. That's the same as MMA. You've got lots of different variables that you need to kind of complete the training exposure in. Um, so how do you distribute that? Um, you're either stacking sessions on top of each other and making very long sessions and then having more prolonged you know, rest periods, or you're doing you know, distributing of training blocks throughout the day in a very sporadic nature to try and um, capture some recovery after each workout. It's, it's you know, again, it's, we, we don't really have that figured out in its entirety right now. A lot of that down to personal preference at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And also, you know, the, the personal lifestyles of the, of the fighter, you know, are they <laughs> night out. you got to pick the kids out, up you know? for, from school right. or something so, like that. Yeah. Some fighters have full-time jobs as pipe layers or electricians or whatever, as well as doing all the training, you know, Demetrius Johnson, who's obviously, uh, you know, 125 in the UFC for a long time now fights in a different organization, but, uh, he, you know, he holds the records for the most defenses in 125. He was, um, a full-time, um, contractor you know builder and and worked on a building site whilst at the same time doing his uh his mma training so what would you say if you were to try and characterize some of the attributes between the guys that joined the ufc who are you know obviously elite fighters they've managed to get themselves an invite into the organization um and the difference between the ones that come and go uh and are unable to have that longevity uh, and unable to unable to really make it to the actual absolute elite of the sport and become not necessarily champions because that's beyond just uh, their own internal training and uh, approach to the sport. But between those guys and between the guys that do make it to the absolute top and then also have the longevity as well in terms of characteristics, their approach to whatever it be, maybe training, coaching, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those, well, if you're in the UFC, you're not training harder than anybody else. Everybody trains hard in this sport, right? So the the thing that differentiates the people at the top versus everybody else is their ability to truly train at the highest, highest level from a technical, tactical perspective, day after day after day after day, you know, for chronic periods of time, whereas everyone else might, you know, reduce their training capabilities and then rebound a little bit, Um still training hard obviously but i think that's one thing which we look to in in our kind of conversations here is something that truly is is differentiating the top guys just their ability to go again and again and again on a daily basis or session to session such that the technical input to their training and their skill development is that much greater than everybody else's have you had a look at motivation from what I mean, you guys do we get we're getting into that a little bit early days if i'm honest and again, people are very motivated for different reasons to be fighters, right? So, you know, we all think that, you know, the the people that just want to, um, you know, beat up other folk. Uh, but that's not always the case. You know, some people are using it as a very meditative type approach to like what, what you know, 
physical pain and trauma allows them to release themselves. Other people are coming at it because, you know, they just love the martial arts and they're, they're lifelong martial artists. Other people coming at it from, um, you know, just financials and I'm just providing money for my kids, right? So I think the motivation, again, is very, very complex. Um, and, and we haven't, we, we're starting to look into that, but we haven't got that, you know, it, it's so diverse in the way people arrive at success in our sport. Yeah, it's a, a question that I think a lot of other people want to have answered as well, let alone just UFC fighters. And it is interesting to think about the fact that a lot of different athletes can arrive in the same sport at the absolute elite of it and yet be driven by completely different things that you yeah. and me can both be fighting in the UFC and you're doing it because you just love to scrap and that's what you always did and that's your passion and I'm doing it because it's a meditative experience and the next person that we're going to fight is doing it because he wants to provide for his family or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that's another reason to be fascinated by our sport. Like the diversity and the, just the, the different variables that come into what makes, uh, you know, to define what a world champion is in mixed martial arts is like throwing mud at a wall and seeing what sticks because you know you could have like truly world-class athletes that are coming out of olympic programs or whatever you could have a guy that's just been around the streets you know like knocking people out for a long time and has elevated to the to the top of small level promotions through to you know kids today 18 years old are training mma from the get-go um so they're just that i'm a mixed martial artist rather than oh, i'm a kickboxer or i'm a wrestler that's kind of the cool part of it is just the diversity and um, the complexity of people's backgrounds. And how do you say that this one route is any better than someone else's route to the top? You know, have you got any idea? I think about this a lot to do with CrossFit because it's the sport that I'm most familiar with recently, but previously you had CrossFit is like Matt Fraser, most dominant CrossFitter basically ever. He came into the sport from weightlifting. Uh, so you have mm -hmm. people that did uh, analogous sports, transferred across, still had an unbelievable speciality within the, their original domain, but then yeah. broadened themselves out. And what you've identified here is that you have an equivalent with regards to MMA. Previously, people would have perhaps come from a very specialized background, be that wrestling or karate or boxing or Muay Thai. And now you're going to have people that are born and bred from the very, very beginning MMA fighters. Do you have any sense or have you do, do you find it particularly interesting that and then also have you got any sense around whether it is optimal to not specialize in one particular domain versus to become a generalist from the very beginning have you, have you thought about this well i think uh you know if you look at um the statistics of our sport i think we you know last time i, I need to this isn't an accurate number so don't hold me to this but last time i looked we had about 87 different ufc champions in history and something like 53 of them were from defined specialisms right whether they are wrestlers or jiu-jitsu players or a kickboxer uh, those numbers obviously changed now it's kind of a couple of years since i saw those numbers i just need to update those but um i think if you look at where the ufc has come from and look at it as a whole then, yeah, you can still say that there isn't a true generalist that's rising to the top. It's still a sport that is built on specialisms, and usually those specialisms are your X factor. So if we take Israel Adesanya right now, obviously he's, he's much reported as the best striker ever in the UFC, right? He's a clear kickboxer. So, you know, there's still people that you can say, well, that, that's a specialist. Um, 
But I think if you compartmentalize, let's say, the last three years or the last five years of our sport, then you can start to see where, all right, that guy has come through purely an MMA training approach to, to success in our sport. Because again, it's become more popular as a sport. It's defined as an individual sport. It's not come from all the individual um, styles themselves. So people just train in MMA now. Um, so that, yeah, if you look at the history, it still leans towards specialisms. But if you look at more current day and you compartmentalize some of the more recent success, um, you know, it's probably 50-50 is where the specialists are to where the uh, the generic fighters or generalists are. One thing that's interesting, a difference between CrossFit and MMA that I've just thought of there, in CrossFit, your your actual goal is to try and be just uh, good at everything. The goal is to not lose any of the events. That's the way that you win. The way that you win is to be whatever, top five to top 10 in every single different event. Whereas in MMA, the goal is to be acceptable across everything so that you don't have any weaknesses and then to be able to peak within one particular domain that gives you a, an outsized ability to finish the fight, right? You're not going to win. You're, you're going to be at more of a vulnerability if you are good at absolutely everything up against a fighter that's acceptable at everything and can push back most of your advances but has one absolute freak dimension to their game. Yeah, I mean, you, you can lose the Olympic Games in the decathlon by having a crappy javelin, right? And... If you can't throw the javelin very far, you can be great at everything else. But that javelin is going to be the one reason why you lose a gold medal or even drop out of the medals. Same in our in our sport, right? If you can't compete off your back in jiu-jitsu and someone takes you to the ground, like game over. You know, there's certain styles where, you know, you have to have a level of generalism to be able to survive right because the fight can go to anywhere it can go against the fence it can go to the ground it can be stand up in the middle of octagon you know you can be in the clinch you can be you know a distance whatever so you know you have to have some awareness of all of those different types of things but yes clearly people have got to the ufc because they have an x factor something that is like outstanding now whether that is your takedown defense whether it's your takedown offense whether it's your striking whether it's your grappling whatever there's something that is just getting you to the top which you would need to maximize that potential and that's an x factor which becomes a competitive advantage so philosophically that's how we try and approach our excuse me our programming is that ultimately when you're off camp when you're not in fight camp preparation we tailor all of our energies and our efforts to mi minimizing your limitations essentially to raising the lowest hanging fruit like what like what are the things that potentially will lose you the fight when we move into fight camp we are sharpening the sword of your like your your x factors so we we, we pursue a as a, a strength kind of strategy what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses and when do we target those in the in the distribution of your training plan dude it's so fascinating to to see a sport that didn't exist what 30 years ago 30 like 31 yeah. 32 years ago literally didn't exist and now where you guys are taking it to is amazing yeah, no, it's it's cool. It's cool to be around. Like I say, we're, we're, it's thirty years as a professional sport in twenty twenty three, so next year, um, and I still think you know there's massive growth opportunities and learnings and professionalization of the sport, and you know it's taking it to the next level. That is, uh, it's 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 a great sport to be around right now. It's uh, it's it's still growing and still improving. If there's someone who has found the stuff that we're talking about here particularly interesting, what are some of your favorite resources to keep up to date with? 
work that's in your region that's in strength and conditioning, hypertrophy, you know, like good accessible places that people can read? Yeah, I mean, if there's any interest in, uh, you know, MMA and, and the UFC, the UFC Performance Institute has released a, a digital journal which can be downloaded. Um, that, that's There's a link for that on our um, Instagram pages and Twitter pages and things like that. Um, again, if you can't navigate that, just reach out through those channels and we'll, I'll let you know. Um, but again, I think, um, you know, just looking at... Um, you know, who who are the who are the players who who's making movements in the in the world of strength and conditioning right now? You know, there's there's some some great people out there. Phil Daru's doing some good stuff. Obviously, um, Joe DeFranco has been doing it for a long time. Others, you know, so it, it depends where you're coming from and what you're trying to achieve. Um, whether it's MMA specific or whether it's more generic training. Duncan, thank you so much for today, mate. No worries. Thanks for the chat. <laughs> <laughs>